Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good morning. Good morning. How are we doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you. For asking, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Marcus Williamson, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 will be in verses 14 through 30. Um, Yeah, so this morning we are going to be continuing on the journey uh, through the book of Matthew, uh, as you saw. And specifically what we're going to be doing is a part two of sorts on last week's teaching on how to be ready. Now, I highly recommend you check out what our friend Jake Blair had to say, but in a nutshell, last week's talk was focused on how we, how many of us live unaware of the idea that Jesus is coming back. That, that, that can be a problem because the scriptures actually teach that he is, in fact, coming back, right? And as followers of Jesus, we actually must be ready for that return. Now... Before we get started, our scripture reader, Joe, uh, just, just read these verses, and I wanted to kind of get ahead of some terminology before we kind of jump in. So the term master and servant in this passage is different from a cultural standpoint than our own. Typically, those two words used closely to one another often denote an unhealthy dynamic in our day, right? And rightfully so, with this country's history of slavery. Uh, but based on the context, of this parable. This dynamic would have been more akin to an investor and a money manager. Um, So you'll hear this language throughout the sermon. It's gonna be dropped a lot throughout the sermon. So try not to get too hung up on this master-servant language as we move along. And also, just know, I know for some of my uh, white brothers and sisters in the room, maybe you didn't catch that part, but I did this for my black brothers and sisters in the room. I see you, fam. I see you. So with that being said, let's start at the top. We're going to work our way throughout all of it, unpack it a little bit, and then we're going to see what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus. Sound good? Love it. Verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on a journey. All right, so let's stop right there. To give us a little context uh, so we can kind of get a frame of mind around this, uh, one of the going three theories for how much a bag of gold would have been, it would have been 20 years worth of salary for a day laborer. Now, in Tennessee, uh, the average salary for workers is around $50,000. And so if we were to actually extrapolate that out, you're looking at about a million dollars a bag. So if you were originally thinking, oh, how cute, a bag of gold. (laughs) Nah, fam, these these cats got millions. They got millions. So in our story, one servant gets five million, to use this language, another gets two million, and the last one gets 
one million. And the text says the reason he gives different amounts to each person is based on ability. Remember that, okay? Remember that. Verse 16. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So the first two guys, they, they went to work. The one given five million uses that money to generate five million. The one given two million doubles it up and generates two million more. But the last servant who was given one million decides to bury his million in the ground. Now, hear me say, if you haven't read this story before, at face value, what this last servant did probably doesn't sound like a big deal. A little unorthodox, I'm sure, but not a big deal. You know, sometimes you just need to have, uh, 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 be a little risk adverse, a little conservative with your money, right? Just digging it and putting it in the ground. Um, maybe it was like, hey, I can't lose money if I don't invest it. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in the master's happiness. So the master is back. And the text says that he is ready to settle accounts. He's, he's ready to see what his servants did with his money, right? So apparently the master did not gift this money as much as he invested this money. So the first two servants show the master how they doubled what they were given. And then the, the master replies to each, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. Now, I want you to notice something about the master before we move on. First, the master is intentional and purposeful. He's intentional and purposeful. He knew that they could handle what he actually invested in. Second, he is also generous. We know this because he says at the end, come and share in my happiness. This would sort of be like getting an invite to the always talked about never duplicated end of the year party from your boss, right? Because you reached some metric or some goal. You get to be at the house and you get to actually hang out with him and enjoy his happiness. This would be very similar to that. Something else I want you to notice. It's small, but it's, it's right before he puts him in charge of many things. It says this. It says, you have been faithful with many, with, with, with many things. You have been faithful with, sorry, with a few things. So if we remember, the master gave based on ability. He was very intentional with what he gave to each of them. And now we see that he is both reinvesting and rewarding based on faithfulness. 
This is the type of master. Uh, uh, this is the type of person that the master is. All right, let's see how he responds to the last servant, verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. So here we, uh, we get a reason from the third servant as to why he didn't do anything with the, mo- with the money. And according to him, it's because he believed that the master was, quote, a hard man. And because he was the type of, uh, type of guy who harvested where he had not sown and gathered where he did not scatter seed. Okay, let's discuss this. A little. Based on what we have read so far, this doesn't sound at all like the master, does it? That phrase hard man is, is better translated into harsh or, or stern or even violent man. And from the looks of it, the master is none of those, right? Even though he came to settle accounts, he says, thank you for being faithful to the other two. And then he reinvests in them, right? He rewards them. Not only that, but, but when he also says, come and share in my happiness. That doesn't sound harsh or stern or even violent to me. That sounds like he's actually a pretty great dude to work for, right? He gave each a task. When they accomplished the task, he rewarded them. If this were your boss, I'm sure you would be happy, right? So I'm not sure what this servant was thinking or or who he was envisioning, but it seems like he was very confused about who he thought he knew. The other part that he claims the master to be is someone who harvests where he has not sown and gathers where he has not scattered seed. Now, it wasn't that long ago, but just so we're all clear, the master gave each of his servants money to invest, right? So I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds very much like sowing and scattering. It's not like he just pulls up randomly on these cats and just says, hey, where's my money? Where, where is this money that I've never invested into y'all? Please, I would love to have it, right? That is harvesting where you haven't sown. But the master doesn't do that. He actually does give, right? So again, this is not a very accurate description of the master by the third servant. It's almost like he's describing the exact opposite of who the master is in the story. All right, let's keep reading and see what the the master has to say. Verse 26. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. So this is exactly the opposite of the way he described the first two servants, right? They were both good and faithful, while the one, this one, is wicked and lazy. And remember, the master invested according to ability. So he knew this particular servant could actually handle a million dollars, it wasn't like he, he just gave him this million and, and, and didn't expect him not to be able to handle it. 
It's not like this third servant was just somebody the master pulled off the streets, right? Someone who had never managed or invested or done any of this. He wasn't like, hey, here, do something awesome with this million dollars, even though I don't know you. That would be careless, right? No, just, just like the guy with the five million, the guy with the two million were given based on ability, this guy with one million was also given money based on ability. He was someone capable of investing and using that money to actually make more money. He just chose not to. So for this servant to do nothing with the investment except bury it seems a little odd, seems a little weird. But I would argue it actually shows us exactly who he is. And it's just as the master said, that he's both wicked and lazy. But let's assume, okay, just for a second, let's assume that, that what the third servant said about the master was, in fact, accurate, okay? That, that, that to that, I would actually say his actions with the money that was given to him still don't match his beliefs, right? That, that his master is a harsh man who harvests and gathers where he has done anything. And the master actually argues this in verse 27, that, he, uh, that if he really believed that he was that way, he would actually have done something with the money. Let me say it this way. Um, if your boss, if you can imagine your boss right now, please nobody shudder too much. Um, if you can imagine your boss right now, uh, and if he gave you a task, right, and you decided not to do it because, quote, you thought he was a harsh man. How do you think that conversation is going to go when your time is up? Like, th think about that for a second, right? Can't you just imagine that conversation? Some of you don't want to imagine that conversation. If you know your boss is a harsh man, if he, if he actually represents that, right, then do you think you should start working? Like, even if you feel paralyzed, wouldn't you talk to your coworkers out of sheer panic? Maybe ask them, hey, can you help me with this job? Can you help me out? Like, I'm shaking. I'm a little nervous. My, master, he, he, my boss is a tough, harsh, stern, maybe even violent. No. Um, wouldn't you ask for help? Think about it. He could have asked, this third servant, he could have asked the other two guys how they were able to double their money. Instead, he, he dug a hole. I feel like it's a lot easier to, to talk to someone um, and ask for help than it is digging a hole. Now, hear me say I, I don't have a million dollars, but I will say that digging a hole to put that in the ground seems like a lot of work, a lot of work. And here's the deal, this, to me, with this third servant, this reads much more like a superficial excuse than an actual reason for his inaction. He sat on his hands, and the master snuck up on him. That's what this sounds like. 
And now, as you know, some of us may do when our boss sneaks up on us, we're scr he's scrambling, right? He's like, oh, uh, yeah, 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 I'm working, I'm doing things. He's trying to throw together a, 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 some type of excuse, some type of rationale for his inaction. Now, hear me say, I know this whole setup may still feel a little more foreign to us, so let me, let me hit you with kind of like a modern day parallel. Um, this, would be, this would be like you went and invested, you know, your million dollars to Edward Jones or some equivalent financial planner of some kind. And after a long time, let's say, you know, closely to retirement, you ask them, hey, how's, how's my investment going? Like, I'm so excited, right? Like, you're so excited you're about to retire. It's going to be so great. You're going to go to the beach. You're going to go, you know, wherever people go with lots of money. I don't have a lot of money, so I don't know what that life is like. But what if they responded with, so, um, don't know how to tell you this, Josiah. I don't know how to tell you this, Catherine, Wesley, Jackie. <laughs> we, we were a bit timid with the market. So we, so we actually didn't invest your money at all. Uh, we kind of just held on to it. We, we, we kind of just dug, dug a hole in the ground and buried it. <laughs> okay, first of all, why did you dig a hole? And then second of all, come, what? Come again? What did you, what did you just do? Yeah, we, we didn't invest in the market like you thought we would. So here is your $1 million back, of course, with some fees, of course, you know, that's, because that's how this works. Okay, can you imagine that? If you have just heard that, how would you respond? How would you respond? I mean, I know how I would respond. I would imagine it would be something along the lines of anger and confusion and maybe some other things that's mixed in, right? Matter of fact, I bet you would probably respond very similar as the master did. Maybe something like, hey, if, if I knew you were going to do that, I would have just kept my money, man. I would have just kept my money, you know, maybe put it in a savings account, maybe into a CD. I mean, even the Robin Hood app could have given me a little something. Shout out to Robin Hood. Um, the whole reason I gave you my money was so that you could make money, right? Not so you could just sit and stare at it. If I, if I wanted my million to stay a million, I would have just kept it. That would be a whole lot easier. So do you, do you sense this, this anger and confusion from the master now? Right? Wicked and lazy actually starts to make a lot more sense when you make that parallel. Okay, that is the response from the master in the story. He's a tad upset, 
Now we're about to see exactly how upset he is. Verse 28. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside even into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he says, hey, hey, since you didn't actually do anything with my money, I'm just going to take that, thank you, and I'm going to give it to this guy. So he gives to the one who had been given $10 million at this point, and again, he knows the servant can actually handle this money, right? It's based off ability, remember that. And then the master calls the third servant worthless and to throw him outside into the darkness where there would be, quote, whipping and gnashing of teeth. Now, normally, I would be all for explaining that last quote, the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. But seeing how Kent has not been here for three weeks, um, I think I'm just going to go ahead and kind of like, I'm going to... Wherever he's at, I don't know where he's at now. I'm going to just go ahead and punt that one to him, okay? Uh, you know, he's going to be talking about this next week. It's going to be so great. He's going to do a great job, guys. I promise you, if you are new, just come back next week. It's going to be beautiful. Um, okay. I'm not going to leave you hanging too much. Here's the point. If you saw, uh, 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 sorry, Here, here's the point. There we go. Uh, <laughs> the master essentially tells the third servant, that because of his wickedness and laziness, he's done with him. Hey, I'm done, I'm, I'm done with you. It's like Everett Jones, right? You would be done with them. To the point where if, even if you saw their name in the news, you would be like, hey, man, like, I remember them jokers. I rem-, and you would say other words. Um, I remember them. You would tell them off in a heartbeat, right? I'm done with them. So that is what the master says. Hey, I'm done with you. Get out of my face. You wasted. You wasted this million dollars. All right. Let's talk a little bit. Let's talk a little bit, because that's, that's the end. Um, let's talk a little bit about the core of this parable. This is a story about a servant who uses a misunderstanding of the master to justify his inaction. Let me say that again. This is a story about a servant who uses a misunderstanding of the master to justify his inaction. He didn't invest the master's money because he felt like the master was too harsh but the reality was, is that the third servant was actually just wicked and lazy. He just didn't want to do anything with the, what the master actually gave him. And then he decides to blame this inaction of his on the character of the master. Now, if you haven't picked up on it, this parable is actually a parallel to how we as followers of Jesus actually interact with God the Father. So this parable is one way of Jesus showing just how to follow him and how not to follow him, right? In light of knowing that the Lord is actually coming back someday. 
So my question for us and kind of what I want us to work through is in what ways might we use misunderstandings of the Father or of Jesus to justify whether conscious or unconscious our inaction? In what ways might we, un, might we use misunderstandings of the Father or of Jesus to justify, whether conscious or unconscious, our inaction? Let me give you three ways that I've actually seen this done uh, as a pastor. First, I've seen people believe that God is love, so repenting is actually not a big deal. Alongside that, you'll hear things like, God loves you exactly as you are. He loves you for you. This understanding of God says that, that, that I can just be myself around God. That I don't need to change because Jesus loves me just as I am. It essentially is built around not looking at our sin. Or not even actually being upset at our sin because Jesus loves us anyway. And sometimes it's not actually outright blatant either, uh, it can actually be a little sneaky too. So for some of us in the room, it might look like, like a sin that we don't think is a big deal, and then we just kind of push it to the side, right? Maybe we see someone's sin in our life group or our community and think to ourselves, well, my sin isn't as big as theirs. You know, I'm just going to hold on to this right now. If it happens again, I'll, I'll talk next week. I'll just, I'll just let this one slide out. I'll, I'll repent if it gets bigger. Next time, I'll confess. Maybe for some of us, we say things like, I know this is wrong, but Jesus will forgive me. I know I shouldn't do this, but grace is enough. I know I should change, but God is gracious. All of those things that I just said are using a misunderstanding of God, that he is loving, that he is gracious, to justify our inaction, i.e. unrepentance. We are very quick to make excuses and then latch on to words like grace and mercy when we feel even a little guilty, even when we feel a little weight of the sin that we've committed. And hear me say, amen to grace and mercy. And also, here's what the scriptures would say about grace and mercy. This is Paul in Romans 2, 4. It says this, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to what, church fam? Repentance. So Romans just said that, that God's kindness shouldn't be justification for not repenting. Rather, God's kindness is the very thing that leads us to repentance. Hear me say this. God loves you so much. He loves each of you so much. So much so that his son died for your sins, for our sins. 
so that we could be in right relationship with the Father. And also he calls us to repent. He does forgive you. He does forgive your sin. And also he calls you to repent. He has so much patience for each of us. Man, he has so much patience for us. He also calls us to repent. All right, here is another way we might justify inaction. Uh, For some of us, when we say this out loud, or maybe we just say it in our head, but we say this, that, that we don't spend regular time in the Bible because we don't want to check a box. Not sure if you've ever heard that one, or maybe you've said it before. We don't want to be legalistic, is the term. If I don't desire to read, if I don't desire to pray or go to church or go to life group, then I won't because that'll be just me checking a box. I don't want to check a box. And our thinking behind this is that, hey, God knows my heart, right? He knows my heart. He cares about my heart. God doesn't want me to just phone it in. And yes, you are correct. God does care about your heart. But the problem, again, is that that we are using a belief about God to actually justify our inaction. Do you see that? And really, it's a misunderstanding about God because what we're operating out of is actually an understanding that, hey, God only cares about my heart's motive. And that because of our hearts, uh, because our hearts aren't there, where they need to be, that somehow, some way, he actually doesn't care about spending time with him, about spending time with his people, about talking to him, about listening to him, when in reality, that is not true at all. God does care about you spending time with him. He actually does want you to spend time with his people. He wants to talk with you. He wants you to talk to him. He wants you to listen to him. I'm I'm all for making sure our heart is in the right place. I believe that we should all kind of peer behind the curtain, so to speak, and behind our motives of what we are doing, especially concerning things with following after Jesus. I'm all for that. And also, here's what I want you to see. If you currently hardly ever spend time in the scriptures, going to life group, praying, going to church consistently, you are not in danger of legalism. I think we got it. Based on the definition of legalism, I figured I'd finish it. Um, That would be like if you were a billionaire, okay? And someone told you, hey, you should try giving $100 away per year, right? And you responded with, well, I don't want to be poor. Okay, my man, I'm not sure how to tell you this, but I don't think you're in danger of being poor. It's very similar, guys. It's very similar. Just go with it. 
So I would venture to say that if you haven't checked a box in quite a while, in a couple of years, maybe, just maybe, you should check a box. Because again, God wants you to spend time with him. He wants you to spend time with his people. He wants you to grow. He wants you to learn to follow after him well. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes that looks like checking a box. Do you see how our misunderstanding of God, him caring about our hearts, has led to months, maybe even years of inaction? Because we think that that, that means he doesn't want us to actually check a box. We've conditioned ourselves, we've maybe even paralyzed ourselves to the point to where we don't actually even commune with God because of a misunderstanding. All right, last one. Sometimes I'll help you hear people say stuff like, hey, I don't need to pray because God will do whatever he wants to do anyway. I don't need to pray because God will do whatever he wants to anyway. Has anyone ever been there before. We convince ourselves that things like prayer or possibly even giving doesn't matter because God is going to do whatever he wants to regardless. We use God's sovereignty as a means to justify our inaction. And what's funny is that if we actually believed that the Lord was sovereign, wouldn't that actually bring us closer to God? Wouldn't that kind of like clue us in to be like, oh yeah, God is all-powerful. He does exactly what he wants to do. Man, maybe I should pray to this guy. Maybe I can bend his ear just a little, you know what I mean? Maybe I can kind of gain a little insight because he is knowledgeable. Since he's in control and he calls me his child because I have right relationship with him because of Jesus, maybe, just maybe, I can talk to him. Maybe he'll hear me out like 1 John 5 says. In all three ways, in all of those ways, and and probably more, we often do something very similar to what the third servant did in the parable. We we sometimes will use understandings and misunderstandings about God to justify our inaction. So the million-dollar question is, what is the solution? What is the solution? First, we need to understand that Jesus is the master who is coming back. We need that to sink in. We need to really hone into that. It's one thing to think it up here, right? Oh, yeah, Jesus is coming back someday, someday. I'm going to just do my thing over here. We need that to actually sink in. Because he won't say when he comes back, hey, did you believe in me? No, he's going to ask us what he asked those servants, right? What have you done with what I have given you? What have you done with what I have given you? That is the question that he asked the three servants in the parables, and that is the question he will ask of us. Now, maybe you're in the room, and when you just heard that, 
your mind went immediately to like, oh, Marcus, hey, that sounds awfully a lot like performance-based religion. I don't think I like that. I thought for sure that I don't have to perform because of grace. Hear me say this. I get that frame of thinking, and I actually agree in part. You were bought with a price. You're loved unconditionally. There's grace. There's so much grace. And also, grace is not meant to stop with you. Grace is not meant to stop with you. It is, it's, it's not meant to impede action. See, on the contrary, grace was actually meant to go through you. Let me say that one more time for the people in the back. Grace is meant to go through you. It's meant to go through you. James 2, um, it says it like this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? Sounds like a black preacher. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? <laughs> if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? That is the question. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself is, it is if it is not accompanied by action, is what, church fam? Dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Can't we coexist? You have faith. Hey, we're, we're one and the same, guys. Show me your faith without deeds. Show it to me. And I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Good for you. Even the demons believe that and shudder. As followers of Jesus, we are meant to act out on our faith. We are, we are meant to, to show it off. We are meant to display our faith to everyone around us, to our brothers and sisters, who we can encourage daily, to people who don't know the Lord. God's grace was meant to go through you. It was not meant to stop at you. Here, here's where I want to land right now. Um, I want us just to ask ourselves two simple questions. Two simple questions. One, what has God given me? What has God given me? And then two, what am I doing with it? What am I doing with it? What has God given you? Is it time? 
Is it time? Maybe you're in college, right? Or, or maybe you're retired and the Lord has blessed you with so much time on your hands, so much time you don't even know what to do with it. What are you doing with it? Are you spending it wisely? Have you ever thought about that? Are you actually spending your time wisely? Are you building God's kingdom or are you building your kingdom? Are you multiplying what God is giving you or are you multiplying what he's giving you for yourself? Is your time your own to distribute? Right? Are you protective of your time, even at the expense of God and what he has given you? Are you consistently using your time for yourself, or are you actually spend, spending that time with the Lord, spending that time with his people, or people that, that don't actually know him? That is the question. So is, the, is, is time what the Lord has given you? Is that you? If you're blessed with time, maybe this is something to consider. Maybe for you, it's actually some sort of ability. Maybe, maybe you're really talented in a certain area, right? And, and you're so talented that you actually uh, 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 get to do what you do for a living by using your talent, right? Your job is essentially your talent. Like you get paid really good to do it. If that's you, do you only use your talents for yourself? Or do you think about, oh man, like maybe I can invest this talent for the kingdom in some way. Now, hear me say this as a disclaimer. I'm not saying this as a ploy for you guys to serve at City Church. I'm not saying that. And unless you're really talented with kids, then City Church, uh, you know, City Kids back here is great. That was a joke. You didn't laugh. It's okay. <laughs> but I am saying, here's what I'm saying. Also, my wife works in City Kids. It was a bad joke. I apologize on camera. Um, here's what I'm saying. Maybe your talents can somehow get you, I don't know, closer into proximity to someone who needs to know about Jesus. Maybe the Lord has gifted you in such a way that others around you may see him through you. Maybe, just maybe. It could, it could be that person at work that the Lord keeps like nudging you, right, that in the back of your head, that's the Holy Spirit, back of your head, just saying, hey, you should talk to this person. You need to talk to this person. Another day goes by, hey, you really should talk to this person. Maybe it's a shelter. Maybe it's another organization that, you could, that, you, that could actually benefit from your talent, from your ability, whatever that looks like. How are you investing your talent, not just for yourself, but for the kingdom? Maybe it's resources or money. Maybe the Lord has, has shown you favor in one of these areas and quite, you can quite literally invest what the Lord has invested in you. One of the joys of being a pastor here, uh, you get to see some really cool stuff. And one of the cool things is I get to see our church family actually live this out vividly. To see how often people in life groups actually give to people in their community 
whether that's work or family or friends, in moments of crisis, or just because, it is so beautiful to witness. So I thank God that, that, that many of us in this room who are in life groups right now actually do this. It is so beautiful to watch. And also hear me say, I do understand the flip side of this, right? Especially the money part. Sometimes it's hard to kind of part with hard-earned money. We work for it. We should own it, right? That is the logic behind that. But to that, I would just say, hey, remember who is giving you the know-how, the ability, all of those things. Remember who has given you that. Who has orchestrated all of those things to kind of fall your way. The one who's giving you the mindset to do all that. Don't forget that. Here's the deal. However we slice it, because Jesus is in fact coming back, we should all be aware of what the Lord has given us and then examine whether we are actually building his kingdom or not. Are we using his investment in us, for us, or are we using that investment for others? Does our faith actually stop with us, or does it impact others? Does grace stop with you? Has it stopped? Or does it actually go through you? Now, when you leave here, I don't want you to use this passage and, and, and turn it into something that it's not. To turn it into to, to Jesus being a harsh master because he is asking me to do all of these things. It's an easy mistake to make. Don't make this passage into something that it's not. This story is about a generous master who gives and expects, then says, come, share in my happiness. In that order. Sitting on your hands doing nothing with what uh, he has given you is not a faithful way to respond to God's generosity. And remember, just like in the passage, God has given you what you have based on ability. And he knows that you can actually handle what he has given you. Hence, why he invested in you in the first place. Church fam, there is work to be done in the kingdom of God. Don't be like the last servant and bury what the Lord has given you to do. Let's invest in the kingdom. Yeah, let's pray.